It is the middle of the work week, and this is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large for January 19th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kelms. Thanks for joining us. Today, we get a preview of the first episode of the new season of the podcast, Undisciplined. In terms of the work that I do as related to HIV, we know that uh, we have four pillars uh, that we try to work on when it comes to eradicating the virus from the society. That's in about 10 minutes. Later in our second half hour, a celebration of the first day of classes at the University of Arkansas. No, not yesterday's first day of the spring semester. We mean the very first day more than a century and a half ago. Charlie Allison's latest adventure into the U of A's past shows us that the first first day had much in common with the first days that followed. Yesterday's new caseload of COVID-19 indicates fewer new cases diagnosed yesterday, a holiday, but increases in deaths and hospitalizations. The Arkansas Department of Health tabulated more than 3,200 new cases and announced a reduction in active cases by more than 4,100. But deaths from the virus increased by 17 fatalities, and the number of people with the virus in Arkansas hospitals increased by 67 patients, meaning there are now nearly 1,500 people with the virus in Arkansas hospitals. That's a new pandemic high for the state. Northwest Arkansas hospitals are now carrying for 155 COVID patients, just 18 fewer than the record number in the region of 173 last August. Gentry schools in Benton County are the latest to shift to virtual learning during a rise in virus cases. A message on the school district's webpage instructs students and parents that virtual classes begin today and last through Friday. Arkansans are observing the 6th Annual National Day of Racial Healing with celebrations stretching throughout the entire week. A number of groups, including the Arkansas Municipal League and the Association of Arkansas Counties, have partnered to observe the holiday. Clarice Abdul-Bay, co-convener of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement, spoke on the significance of extending the commemoration beyond just one day. And we were talking about the importance of this day and how, because of Arkansas's difficult history and truth, racial justice and transformation that we needed more than one day, a one day observance. We adapted the uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation's National Day of Racial Healing and made it a week long observance, starting with Dr. King's Day of Service. Hillary Trudell is CEO of Just Communities Arkansas, a nonprofit working to build greater racial understanding. She says present-day Arkansans should look to the past for lessons on why racial healing is important today. There are people in this country that would have our teachers deliver a revisionist history of what bred the intolerance that still permeates our nation today. This history glosses over the sin of slavery and all the oppressive actions blatant and subversive that followed in the hopes that we might forget the source of the wounds that still need mending. This is the third consecutive year that more than a dozen organizations in Arkansas have joined to observe the National Day of Racial Healing. Virtual events, including award ceremonies, concerts, and lectures, are scheduled throughout the week. Another long-serving Arkansas legislator will not be seeking re-election this year. Joe Jett, a Republican from Northeast Arkansas, will not run again. He was first elected to the Arkansas House in 2012 as a Democrat, but switched parties in 2016. He says he's looking forward to spending more time with his children, his grandchildren, and family farm. Experience Fayetteville will sponsor the USA Women's World Championship Cyclocross team. The World Championships will be hosted by Fayetteville later this month. And yesterday, USA Cycling and Experience Fayetteville announced the sponsorship relationship. Molly Ron, the CEO of Experience Fayetteville, says the sponsorship is part of the organization's commitment to creating more accessibility for women in sport. The World Championships will be in Fayetteville January 28th through the 30th. It's just the second time in the event's 72 years the World Championships have been held in the United States. Arkansas Razorback Baseball is ranked second in the preseason poll issued yesterday from D1 Baseball. In previous release polls from Perfect Game and Collegiate Baseball, Arkansas is ranked 9th and 20th respectively ahead of the start of the season. First pitch for the 22 season, February 18th in Fayetteville against Illinois State. And the Arkansas softball team is ranked 8th in the nation in D1 softball's poll released yesterday afternoon. The Razorbacks opened the season February 10th in Puerto Vallarta, home opener February 17th against Wichita State. And the National Weather Service says we're getting another reminder it is, after all, winter. There is a winter weather advisory for northwest Arkansas until 6 tonight. The National Weather Service says a mix of freezing rain, light snow and sleet expected, with snow and sleet accumulation amounts between a trace and a half inch, ice accumulations of a glaze. No freezing precipitation in the forecast for the Arkansas River Valley or much of eastern Oklahoma. 
It will be cold everywhere in the region tonight, though. Overnight lows from 13 to 19 across the broadcast area. Wind chills below zero in some locations. This is Ozarks at Large. Healthcare professionals have had a challenging two years. The stress of COVID-related issues on top of the already existing challenges of taking care of patients and their medical records can be a lot. Later this year, Arkansas Children's will host a 48-hour session designed to find solutions to medical industry problems. That event, called a hackathon, will take place April 1st through the 3rd in Bentonville. Yesterday, we reached Barry Brady, the chief operating officer for Arkansas Children's Research Institute, to find out more about how this will work. He says the idea is to discover digital solutions to establish challenges. We will have these five kind of case studies or problems, and we'll have our, our subject matter experts present those at the, the meet to kick off the meeting. And then these teams of um, you know people that can uh, solve digital health or can have a digital health solution will get together and try to spend 48 hours coming up with a solution for the problem that they pick. And at the end of the 48 hours, which would be a Sunday afternoon, they would get together um, with some judges and there would be a prize of $10,000 for the team that wins as the best solution for the problem that they selected. I realize this is a competition with a $10,000 cash prize, so you don't want to give away, obviously, early what the, the problems are. But could you give us an example of what what sort of digital challenge might exist? Yeah, and we wanted to pick some problems that didn't necessarily have to be integrated into our medical record system, so they could be standalone systems. But I can give you a couple of examples of what um, those problems might be. You know, one with COVID and the current stresses on clinical staffing that's contributed to emotional stress and fatigue, you know, for, for Arkansas children clinicians. So, uh, while these are the only, aren't the only two contributing factors to stress and fatigue, uh, we, we realize that uh, those factors can affect or impact clinical outcomes, employee and team morale, and patient satisfaction. So we thought there, if there was a good way to have a way for clinicians to anonymously self-report their emotional state before they start their shifts, then that, that way we could aggregate that data and maybe move the resources to a place that may be better um, managed are better, um, you know, fit to take care of the, those, the daily activities. And then another uh, opportunity too would be to build a solution for patient and caregivers of pediatric patients with neurological shunts to accurately access signs and symptoms in order to seek appropriate levels of care. So, so now if they have any kind of issue, if it's off hours, they just have to take the child to the ER. But if they had some kind of solution that would kind of help them understand you know, what needs to happen next, they may not have to do that as often. So we think that's an opportunity as well. Is is there a unique sort of um, idea development that can take place when you bring people, you bring these teams in and you give them 48 hours of, I guess, ideally, you know, um, uninterrupted thoughts and chances to experiment and, and think through uh, possible solutions? Yes, yeah. So we're we're trying to kind of uh, match these uh, experts, and each team we're wanting to have at least five teams, and each team would be comprised probably of about four uh, team members. One would be a, a project or product um, person who would be kind of the voice of the consumer. There'd be a designer who has um, you know experience that can create the design for the solution, a full stack developer, and a front end developer. And so what we want to do is those people that have the expertise, match them with our subject matter experts from the hospital to help come up with a solution uh, for our patients and families. I wonder, I wonder what it, what the, um, I don't know, the general vibe or the, or the atmosphere is like during one of these 48-hour um, hackathons. 
Yeah, we hope it's going to be a real exciting, uh, vibrant time. We, uh, you know, we've not done this. This has been uh, hackathons have been around for several years and it's been done in other industries. But we think uh, it should be a really neat experience. So we're we're having it at the collaborative, uh, the Bentonville Collaborative of U of A, and that's a really neat kind of innovative space. And uh, we think it's just a great opportunity. We plan to have food and um, just. Um, things for people to relax and kind of think about these problems for 48 hours to, to come up with a solution. When you look at the uh, application process, there's a paragraph that says all intellectual property created during the hackathon will accrue to the teams that developed it. Uh, children's won't retain any rights to the ownership. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So we thought that would encourage people to participate. And one of the other advantages of this program is we're, um, uh, working with Cartwheel, which is a uh, studio startup entity that is uh, in Northwest Arkansas. And so they, the plan is they may select one of these teams to put through their startup studio to help them move through the process of setting up a startup company and uh, <clears throat> seeking uh, commercialization. So that's another advantage for people participating in this uh, hackathon. And and who who should think about applying to, to participate in this April 1st through 3rd event? Yeah, anybody that has the experience that we're looking for in those four teams, and you can go to the Arkansas Children's Innovation Center uh, website, Hackathon, and we've got the link there to sign up. But uh, team members can sign up individually or they can sign up as a team. And so when we had originally scheduled this in January, we had about four or five teams that had signed up as a team. But uh, there's opportunity to do more as well. So we're We're really excited about it. Barry Brady is the Chief Operating Officer for Arkansas Children's Research Institute. He spoke with us yesterday. You can learn more about applying for the April 1st through 3rd Hackathon in Bentonville by looking for links at healthtecharkansas.com. We also have a direct link you can use at ozarksatlarge.com. This is Ozarks at Large, Undisciplined, the podcast produced by Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore in collaboration with the African and African-American Studies program at the U of A, is back for season two. In the season opener, host Karee Banton talks with Dr. Ernest Eufenue. Dr. Eufenue grew up in Cameroon and came to America to study at Vanderbilt, and he's now a researcher at the CDC studying HIV and AIDS, but his knowledge and understanding of preventing and slowing epidemics is valuable when it comes to understanding other diseases, like what we're experiencing currently with COVID-19. In terms of the work that I do as related to HIV, we know that uh, we have four pillars uh, that we try to work on when it comes to eradicating the virus from the society. We have uh, testing. You know, you have to test individuals who are infected to make sure that you know where the, where the infection is happening, right? You have to then treat individuals who are infected. And then you have to prevent individuals who are not infected from acquiring the disease. And then you have to respond rapidly to any, uh, any hotspots that you notice. So those are the four. Test, treat, prevent, and respond quickly. For me, I focus on the first of the four, which is testing. So if you don't test, you never know where the leading edge of the epidemic is. It's the same thing we experienced here with COVID-19. We talked about testing, 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 whether it is laboratory testing, whether it is testing at home, testing in the community. You have to test individuals to make sure that you know where the leading edge of the, uh, of the epidemic is happening or the pandemic is happening. So for me, we do a lot of work in Africa where we do participate in a lot of testing. And here at home, I do participate in developing new assays that can, uh, can detect HIV infection as well and put a timestamp on the infection. By putting a timestamp, I mean you can detect the HIV and tell approximately when the individual was infected. How? Well, it depends. Uh, there are different methods uh, that you can employ in, uh, in doing so. For the one method that we use is uh, it's antibody avidity. So what you would di- dis- discover is that uh, when an individual is infected with the virus, for instance, you know, in the early phase of uh, the infection, uh, the antibodies are made uh, that have uh, what we call low avidity. 
Avidity is uh, the binding strength of the antibody to the antigen, which is the virus. You know, it could be the viral antigen, uh, different proteins from the virus. So the antibodies that are made during the early phase of the infection have very low avidity. And antibodies that are made during the last or the late phase of the infection, which is called long-term, have very strong avidity. So you can classify the avidity as weak avidity or strong avidity, and then be able to distinguish it as uh, you know early infection or late infection. I'm trying to put this in uh, simplistic terms so that I don't confuse yes, individuals. Yes. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. What do we know now? What are we still learning about the intersection of COVID-19 and HIV? What you're calling containing contagions? I mean, these two viruses are very similar and different similar and different. Like I said from the, from the beginning, when you look at uh, the similarities, we can look at the similarities in fighting any pandemic or epidemic, right? It is a standard formula. It's test to find those who are infected, right? Test and treat those who are infected. Prevent those who are negative from acquiring the virus or from getting infected. And then respond quickly. So that is a standard formula. It applies to the COVID-19, it applies to HIV, but then there are subtle differences. For instance, uh, for HIV, you know, an individual can be infected with HIV and they don't uh, show any symptoms, but after maybe some 10 years or so, that's when they start experiencing maybe AIDS-related symptoms, right? When the immune system becomes compromised. So you can be infected for this long and you are not experiencing any symptoms, you know, 10 plus years or, you know. But then with COVID, you are looking at, uh, mat, you know, matter of days, uh, at least at most a week, right? When you start uh, experiencing the symptoms of COVID-related disease. So you think about it. So you have uh, 10 years and you have a couple of days. So those are, those are, those are very different in terms of responding to a need, right? So the thing here is that by the time that the individual who, is, you know, who has to take up to 10 years before experiencing symptoms, what happens is this individual then has, what, 10 years to do what? To spread the virus. Because if you are detecting this individual, let's say after 10 years when they were infected, for those 10 years they were doing what? Infecting other people. Whatever the means of uh, infection, they got the virus. They're probably using that same means of infection to spread the virus around. So detecting the infection early on is very important. That's one thing that they always stress. You have to detect the infection early on so that you stop that chain of transmission. And there's the evidence, too, that shows that when you detect the infection early on in the HIV cycle, you actually, the treatment responds, you know, better during that early phase of infection. Now, when it comes to COVID-19, for instance, like I said, the, you know, you're looking at a matter of days here. So <laughs> if you don't detect here in a matter of days, then, of course, infection becomes a troublesome thing. So you have to really have a system in place to detect quickly, especially for COVID-19, uh, that uh, manifests itself within just days. Are people who are currently living with HIV, are they at higher risk for COVID-19? So the ultimate answer is no. But then you also have to notice here that uh, they are at higher risk to have comorbidities. The comorbidities here could include things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, so on and so forth, or other chronic diseases that they might have. So, yes, it has been shown that uh, if you have any comorbidities, you are at higher risk for, you know, acquisition of, um, of COVID-19 and, of course, faring really badly with COVID-19 as well, right? Because you remember China made an important observation during the early phase of the, of the pandemic where they discovered that seven out of every 10 people that died from COVID-19 had some form of comorbidities, right? So, but then if you look here in the United States where 50% of those, so actually more than 50% of those who actually have HIV are more than 50 years old, I think. I, th I hope that is a statistic. So if you are already old, that old, the chances of you having a comorbidity is already high. You know, it's not just associated with the HIV, it's already associated with your age to begin with. So, you know, to attribute that to HIV 
or to your age is a little bit confusing here. So the the bottom line is uh, from everything that has been published, it does not look like uh, those who have HIV, uh, you know, have a higher risk of having um, COVID-19. However, if you have HIV and it's not under controlled, then definitely if your immune system is compromised, then definitely you don't have an immune system to fight the virus to begin with. Once COVID-19 hit, what what were your thoughts? I'm always curious as to people who are at the center of these kinds of... What was your thoughts like with with COVID-19? Well, COVID-19 was not any different from any new virus. You know, when a new virus enters a society, there is, uh, first of all, there's going to be chaos. It's acceptable. So you didn't go get your own t- your tissue and all that. Well, it's gonna be everybody's uh, everybody's wondering that who, who is this new virus or what is this new virus that has come into the society, right? Mm-hmm. From the scientists to politicians, everybody is uh, running left and right. Nobody wants to say something about it that will hold them responsible. Nobody wants to say something about it that, uh, you know, later on they will say, but you said this, you know, uh, a few years ago, why are you changing your position today? But what you have to discover with a new virus appearing in the society is that perfection is an enemy of good. You don't have to wait until something is perfect before you actually put a system in place to fight the virus. Whatever thing that you have in place at that particular time to fight the virus, whether it is 10%, 20% effective, use it and then work on the one that will fight 50%. And then when you get the 50%, you work on the one that will fight for 100%. So you have to work progressively to attaining you know, that perfection. But if you keep waiting for perfection, then... That perfection is an enemy of good. Now, the other thing that I, the other thing that I want to mention is that when a new virus comes into the society, like the HIV, you know, in way back then in 1981, it took about what six or seven years before the then president at the time, uh, Ronald Reagan, actually said something about the HIV. You know, he before he actually mentioned it publicly and officially. Six years. The same thing happened with uh, with COVID-19. You know, it started in, in China in what, December of 2019, even when we had more than 5 million cases here in the United States and tens of thousands of deaths here in the United States. Our president then did not even acknowledge it. He said it was, oh, it was, uh, you know, it was a hoax. Uh, it will go away very soon. Nobody, nobody should believe this. So there is, you know, there is bound to be confusion and there is bound to be denial from the political family. And then when you look at uh, those who are spreading the information too, there is bound to be an onslaught of misinformation and disinformation where individuals will intentionally, in this information, individuals will intentionally spread false rumors or false information about the virus to just mislead people. And then in the misinformation aspect of things, people might just say things you know, innocently, not knowing that it is misleading. So there is confusion, but the truth is that, you know, you move from face to face. And then, uh, like I said, perfection is an enemy of good when you are dealing with situations like that. You know, when the mask mandate came into place, people questioned why should they be wearing masks? The six feet came into place. People were questioning why should we be keeping social distancing and so on and forth. So all those things are put in place when you discover that, okay, this is the mode of transmission. This is how we can prevent this. But then people can say, well, but we did that and then still somebody contracted the virus. Well, it is not 100% perfect. But we do that to at least minimize the, the, the risk of spreading the virus. So we cannot wait for perfection before we can control the virus. Or now in the case of uh, vaccination, for instance, you know, people are saying that, oh, uh, this vaccine is only 90% uh, effective and so on and so forth. There is never going to be a vaccine. Well, maybe there can be a vaccine that is 100% perfect. But if you want to wait for that, okay, trust your God. We'll again be bringing you editions of Undisciplined every other Wednesday on Ozarks at Large for the second season. Still to come on today's show, the Jameson Alexander Success Center assists children with disabilities by delivering therapeutic items at no charge. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich will have that report ahead. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. 
The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series featuring local artists and restaurants, returns Friday, January 21st with Mia Jeldum and Mockingbird Kitchen. Due to the current COVID-19 surge, January's concert will not have a live audience, but will be live-streamed. Last month's The Lunch Hour podcast featuring Bang and Woodstone Pizza founder Jeremy Gothrop is available on KUAF's YouTube page. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. George'sLive.com for more. This is Ozarks at Large. The Arkansas Razorback men's basketball team is now on a three-game SEC winning streak after defeating South Carolina last night in Bud Walton Arena. The win comes with a historic statistical footnote. The Razorbacks last night did not successfully shoot a three-pointer, going 0-for-11 from behind the three-point line. It was the first time since January 1989 that the Arkansas team has failed to get such a basket in a game. That was the third longest active such streak in the country, a span of 1,092 basketball games. Last time Arkansas didn't collect a three-pointer, Ronald Reagan had two weeks left in office. Poison had the number one song in America, Every Rose Has Its Thorn, and The Cosby Show was the most watched program on TV. Good news is the third straight win means Arkansas has climbed back into the upper half of the SEC standing. Still, fans of numbers and sports are a bit sad that the shooting streak has ended, even if the team won. But, as Pennsylvania-born philosopher Brett Michaels explained 1,092 game days ago... Has its just like every night has its dawn, just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. Every rose has its dawn. This is Ozarks at Large. America's restaurants are struggling between staff catching COVID, a labor shortage, and the price of food going up. It's tough. We are on a week-by-week planning to see how long are we going to stay open. I'm Elsa Chang, how the latest COVID surge is affecting the restaurant industry. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF 91.3. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF anywhere to hear our signals. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday was the first day of classes for the spring semester at the University of Arkansas. No first day of classes is exactly like any other, but there are similarities, right? In fact, Charlie Allison, the executive editor for University Relations at the U of A, discovered that the very first first day of classes, 150-plus years ago, delivered some of the same uncertainty students and faculty might feel right now. Though that first day of classes didn't presumably have students navigating mask wearing and social distancing. Charlie, this week, for his observation of the U of A's sesquicentennial, takes us back to the first, first day of classes. 150 years ago, on the morning of January 22, 1872, a 16-year-old woman named Anna Putman set out from the warmth of her family's home and headed for school. Her family lived on the hill just south of the university campus, now known as Putman Hill, and she headed to the university campus to enroll. It was the first day of classes at the Arkansas Industrial University. The winter had been colder than normal that year, and and snow had covered the ground since December. In fact, another eight inches had fallen just the Thursday prior. City ice merchants were staying busy cutting blocks of ice from the ponds, rivers, and creeks across town, hauling the ice away to be buried in sawdust for storage for the coming summer. Anna's chilly walk from her family's house to the new university campus led through a hollow along a rutted wagon path now known as Duncan Avenue and up onto the fields of the old McElroy farm. She approached a grove of bare-limbed trees at the top of the hill, dark against the pale morning sky. Amid that grove, the university's newly erected school building stood square on the crown of the hill. With some timidity, she walked up to the building and peeked through a window. She didn't like what she saw. The school building itself didn't bother her. Admittedly, the board and batten structure wasn't of collegiate standard. It had been hastily built in less than two months to meet a deadline for the university's opening. One student described it as, quote, a little lonely two-story frame building standing hidden among the black oak trees. Still, in most respects, the classroom building was familiar, not unlike the private subscription schools that existed in Arkansas prior to the Civil War. 
The tall windows looked in on a large single room with a wood stove. It was already full of embers and warming the building against the frigid weather. Surrounding it were new tables, chairs, and school desks that all came from Chicago, and all of them were shiny with new varnish. Blackboards, maps of the world, and charts hung on the walls. And in addition to what she could see downstairs, a small number of specially selected books, periodicals, and globes were gathered as the university's first library in a bookcase upstairs. No, this was a good building under the circumstances. Same with the professors. They caused her no worry either. Like the majority of the surrounding community, they were white, European-American educators, although all of them were relatively recent arrivals in northwest Arkansas. The Board of Trustees had appointed Noah P. Gates as the acting president and also named him the chair of the Mental and Moral Philosophy Department. He also served as principal of the Normal Department, which was charged with training students just such as Anna to become teachers. Gates had arrived in Fayetteville on January 1 and looked every inch an educator. The university also hired Charles H. Leverett. He had taught at the Ozark Institute in the nearby community of Mount Comfort since the end of the war, and he would serve as professor of ancient languages and literature. Both Gates and Leverett could look stern, but they were what any student expected a teacher or a professor to be. Within two weeks, they were joined by Mary Gorton, who came from Illinois and became preceptress of the Normal Department and professor of mathematics and English literature. No, the faculty by all appearances were fine. When Anna Putman entered the two-story building to seek admission and register for classes that first day, she looked into the school building and saw the other students. Like her, they were white students who grew up in the surrounding community of Fayetteville. The hasty opening of the university hadn't given students from elsewhere in the state enough time to travel to Fayetteville for the opening. Yet still, she found one troubling element, one commonality of despair. To her, the seven other students were all of one type, boys. <laughs> Their names were William Brooks, Frank Bowie, John Carlyle, Cyrus R. Gilbreth, Andrew Gregg, Albert Gregg, and Robert Putman. That last boy was Anna's younger brother, which probably didn't help her disposition much. After that historic first day of university classes, she ran home sobbing and told her mother and father, quote, I'll never go to that boy's school again. I am the only girl enrolled. Has every single freshman in the history of the university felt that momentary pang of doubt? This is not what I expected. How will I fit in? Can I belong? Will the school ever be a home to me? <laughs> she was ready to quit. But Anna's mother, Elizabeth, would not allow the doubts to fester. Elizabeth discussed the situation with a neighbor whose daughter was about the same age as Anna. Soon, Maggie Campbell joined Anna Putman in the walk to campus, and together they kept the door open for future women. Putman did indeed become a teacher, earning her teaching license after three years at the university. She returned a few years later and also earned her Bachelor of Arts and taught for 53 years, sending generations of new students to the university. I might add that today, the shoe is on the other foot. Today, around 55% of the campus, students, staff, and faculty are women. Also, the university has created a student success center that stands less than 100 yards from where that very first school building was erected. It's a center that brings together numerous programs aimed at helping students overcome obstacles on campus, whatever their self-doubts. The center offers all manner of programs, from tutoring labs to academic advisors, from financial aid to writing studios, and from peer mentoring programs to just a shot of caffeine from the Starbucks coffee shop downstairs. The Student Success Center is aimed at being a hub for students who deserve the very best the university can give. And as with Anna Putman, not one of them should be dissuaded from their educational prospects by any stumbling block, large or small. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas. Each week, he's been giving us glimpses into the history of the U of A. There are other observations connected to the 150th anniversary academic year. You can find out more at 150.uark.edu. Earlier this week, we talked with filmmaker and journalism professor Larry Foley about a project he'll premiere soon that is also part of the 150th celebration at the U of A. It's a documentary titled, If This Walk Could Talk. Our conversation, recorded Monday afternoon, will air soon on an upcoming Ozarks, but here's just a bit of information about Larry's latest film. You know, I have this line where I say, I do my research, I think about it, and I take my notes, and then I just get out of the way. You know, the story should tell itself. The title should name itself. Uh, and, you know, we have some great traditions on campus. We have the Razorbacks. We have the hog call. 
we have old Maine. But I remember John White, when he was president, telling me that, you know, the, the tradition that we have that, that is unlike anybody else's is senior walk. And I have been on faculty here in my 29th year. I went to school here as an undergrad. I literally grew up on this campus moving here when I was two. And my dad's name is on there from the class of 1958. So every story on that walk, every name on that walk has a story. And so there you go, if this walk could talk. Multiple Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Foley discussing his latest project, If This Walk Could Talk. It's about senior walk. Our full conversation will be heard on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. In 2015, the Walton Family Foundation established the Northwest Arkansas Design Excellence Program to match emerging public spaces in the region with top design firms from around the country. The Rail Yard Park in downtown Rogers is a beneficiary of the project, as is Thaden School in Bentonville and Theater Squared in downtown Fayetteville. This month, the program added 31 new design firms to the pool. We reached Meredith Bergstrom, program officer at the Walton Family Foundation, for a catch-up on the first five years of the Northwest Arkansas Design Excellence Program. She says it's about creating places for people to help create a more vibrant community. So what that looks like is there is a pool of firms, architects, landscape architects, and planners, urban designers, that uh, our selection committee can draw from when a project comes up here in the region and is approved as part of the program. There are 15 projects that have been approved, uh, meaning that the foundation has funded the design of of this public space. And uh, essentially when a project comes up, our selection committee can pair our our local grantee, sometimes a municipality, sometimes a nonprofit, um, with a number of firms that they can then uh, interview and consider to design their project. And we have, um, you know, we're so proud of the program, of the work that grantees have done. You know, it started with the uh, Rogers Historical Museum, an adaptive reuse project in downtown Rogers. Um, And then most recently, we have the Briartown Cottages were completed in downtown Bentonville, which is an exciting uh, showcase of four different accessory dwelling unit typologies and they're open source designs. Anybody can actually look and download those plans. So if I am an entity, be it a municipality or a nonprofit, and I have this project, it gets approved to be put into the pool, then is it sort of like, I don't know, a, a medical school match, how that works? Like some firms will show potential interest, and then I, representing the municipality or the nonprofit, can interview those firms, and we eventually sort of make this public space marriage? Correct. So we have um, a selection committee made up of four uh, selection committee members. They're practitioners and academics in the design space from around the nation. And they'll choose from our pool of designers, which they're, now that we've added 31 new firms, there's 68 total currently. And we want to ensure that that pool has, you know, a depth and diversity of experience and skill sets Um, both, you know, breadth and depth of type of projects that they've designed um, to scale of projects that they've designed so that the selection committee can can say, hey, we think, you know, four or five uh, firms from this list would be really excellent for you to consider. But ultimately, it's up to the grantee to to select a firm that they would like to hire to design the project. You mentioned the addition of these new 31 firms brings the total that's in that uh, sort of approved pool to 68. There are some from Northwest Arkansas, but they're from around the country as well. Yeah, I think that's something that is really worth noting about the pool of designers. The There's, as I said, a breadth and depth of experience and skill um, type of projects in those portfolios. So we have firms like Jimmy Tucker Architect in Memphis, who has experience with affordable housing to silo architecture research and design here in Fayetteville. 
And, um, and then, you know, even firms that have really, you know, international destination, uh, destinations in their portfolio, like um, Ajaye Associates, who is renowned and well-known for designing the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History. With 68 firms approved, not all of them are going to get work in two or three years. I mean, there aren't that many projects that, that get approved for uh, development. Right. So as much as we would love for each of these firms, because of their um, incredible experience to be able to design a project in Northwest Arkansas, it's really important for the overall pool to have flexibility, right? So that when a project comes up, our selection committee and our grantees can be assured that we have firms that represent exactly the type of skill sets um, that they need for that project. And I think in this particular round, we noted in the RFQ that we were looking for firms um, and that the selection committee would choose firms that have particular experience in inclusive public engagement, um, in neighborhood scale projects, uh, and in um, uh, housing, affordable and workforce housing, because we uh, anticipate that these are needs of the program going forward. Finally, um you mentioned completed projects that are in Rogers and Bentonville. Are there any that are under construction or development right now that are part of this? Yes, I think so. several of these might sound familiar to folks. Um, so currently there's a completed design for Luther George Park in Springdale. Uh, they're still in a capital campaign phase. Um, the Cultural Arts Corridor in Fayetteville is a design excellence project. Uh, and there's a Springdale Municipal Campus that's nearing completion. If a city or a nonprofit has something, whether it's on the drawing board or still kind of, you know, rolling around before it's been put down on paper as a firm idea, what can they do to be part of the potential pool of projects? It's a great question. And we certainly welcome conversations with folks that are considering a project that fits within our intention. Um, the Design Excellence Program is really guided um, by four principles, strengthening public life, elevating standards of sustainability and resilience, celebrating local culture and place, and building regional capacity in, in design. So if there's a project that really fits those, uh, those principles, we welcome that, those conversations. Meredith Bergstrom is Program Officer at Walton Family Foundation, and we talked yesterday via Zoom. Meredith also says in addition to 31 new design firms from around the country being added to the Design Excellence Program pool, there has been an addition to the Selection Committee as well, Toshiko Mori. Toshiko is a renowned architect. She is uh, the founder of her own firm and also sits now as the a professor in the practice of architecture at Harvard University Graduate School of Design. And um, Toshiko just brings, I think, a really incredible insight to the field of design. So we're, we're thrilled that she's now part of our selection committee. You can learn more about the Northwest Arkansas Design Excellence Program at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents In American Waters, a new exhibition featuring marine paintings by a wide range of American artists, including Georgia O'Keeffe, Amy Sherald, Nick Cave, and more, as these artists present the beauty, violence, and transformative power of the sea in American life. On view through January 31st. Tickets and info at crystalbridges.org. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. Tomorrow on a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large... Matthew Moore will report on today's town hall meeting on the University of Arkansas campus, the meeting taking place as students are returning to in-person classes, and we have high virus cases in Fayetteville, northwest Arkansas, and across the state. Plus, Sound Perimeter with Leah Uribe, and Courtney Lanning is back to review the new movie, Sing a Bit of Harmony. All of that and more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. If you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large, 
You can just ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. Also, you can use our KUAF app, that's free as well, to go back through the archives of Ozarks at Large. I'm Scott Tong. The HBO documentary Simple as Water is on the shortlist for an Oscar nomination. The film looks at the effects of the Syrian war on four families spread across five countries. Each family in the film has some unspeakable loss, yet -hmm. they also have this intense determination. Next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, today at 1 on KUAF, and you can listen to KUAF at any time, anywhere, by using our free KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. The nonprofit Jameson Alexander Success Center, headquartered in Faulkner County, assists children with disabilities delivering therapeutic items at no charge. The center also operates a program to inspire all youth to succeed, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with founder Antonio Jameson to bring us his story. Antonio Jamison, based in Mayflower, Arkansas, established the Jamison Alexander Success Center in 2017. We are committed to building strong, trusting relationships, positive attitudes, and life skills in youth through mentoring and inspiring positive changes in all youth with disabilities or any hardships. Jameson, a native of Forest City, has a social work degree from University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, a master's in public administration from Arkansas State University, and has worked in behavioral health. He was also a mentor with the Arkansas Promise Model Demonstration Project, a $32 million five-year grant awarded by the U.S. Department of Education to the University of Arkansas College of Education and Health Professions and Arkansas Department of Education, designed to improve the education and employment outcomes of youth with disabilities with the aim of reducing reliance on public benefits. And since I graduated college, I always had a heart to uh, helping kids with disability or any hardship across the state of Arkansas to uh, reduce uh, uh, anxiety and loneliness and always help kids to try to uh, uh, stay out of trouble and inspire them every day. With Federal CARES Act funding administered by the Arkansas Department of Human Services, he began to provide weighted blankets and other therapeutic items to children with disabilities. According to the National Institutes of Health, research shows that safely sized and fitted weighted blankets may relieve symptoms of anxiety and depression, perception of pain, resulting in improved sleep, which Jameson discovered literally by accident. I was in a wreck, and ever since that wreck, I was unable to sleep, but I always put a lot of blankets on me, and it helped me go ahead and fall asleep, so uh, it helped. I had anxiety and didn't have a clue, and I was experiencing what I have heard other the, our patients that we done helped so long overcome, and I and uh, I received a weighted blanket as a gift. The blanket really helped, he said, so he experimented further, providing a weighted blanket to his nephew diagnosed with autism. The blankets helped him. With additional funding from Arkansas Community Foundation and the Arkansas Black Philanthropy Collaborative, he's expanding his weighted blankets and therapeutic items delivery program to help even more children, which started in Faulkner County. In 2021, we again uh, blessed over uh, over 100-plus kids with weighted blankets uh, in Faulkner, Pulaski, um, Washington County, St. Francis, Phillips, Jefferson, uh, anyone who called and and uh, said their kid was going through anxiety or felt lonely, uh, we traveled there and uh, personally delivered uh, weighted blankets uh, to those uh, students. We uh, took 17 weighted blankets to a self-containment class in Camden, Arkansas, Ivory, primary school in Camden, and we also uh, made a stop over Christmas at Stevens Elementary here in Little Rock, Arkansas, to help kids overcome feelings of uh, anxiety and being lonely. It it was a very, um, very touching experience. Jameson launched a youth mentoring program called Hello, or Healing, Encouraging, Loving, Lifting, and Overcoming during the COVID-19 pandemic. He produces an online digital stream as well named Hello Radio, found on the Zeno Radio app. It's called This Is My uh, Story. 
to let kids uh, call into the radio station. I, I show them, uh, I will even come out and show them how it operates and let them take over the radio station. And, you know, and it will help all students find their voice in happiness. When we asked Antonio Jameson how listeners could support his nonprofit work, he had this to say. If you know any kid or any school that has a self-contained class that uh, special education teachers need uh, to try to help uh, uh, bring joy and happiness to their classroom, please reach out to me. So we're telling you donors may reach out to jamesonalexandermentoring.org, which we've posted on our news site. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large. Artist Neil Harrington will present a solo exhibition of hand-tinted woodblock prints titled Many Moons at the Community Creative Center in the Nadine Bomb Studios in downtown Fayetteville through February 4th. There will be a closing reception on February 4th at 5 that night with an artist lecture beginning at 6 that night. For more information, communitycreativecenter.org. Art Ventures will host the first Thursday reception and the opening to its latest exhibit, Frame of Mind, Critical Black Theory, February 6th from 5 until 8.30 that evening. It will feature varied artistic approaches to creative expression by black artists, the resilient spirit of the marginalized, and their passionate expression of pain, conflict, and joy. The first Thursday event is free. It is open to the public. That's February 6th. If you'd like more information, artventures-nwa.org. And you can celebrate Black History Month at the Fort Smith Public Library's Windsor branch throughout the month of February. Color a paper quilt block to add to the famous faces of African-American history display, or you can learn something new by participating in a self-guided Black History Bingo. The Windsor Drive branch of the Fort Smith Public Library is located at 4701 Windsor Drive in Fort Smith. If you'd like to know more, including library hours, you can go online to fortsmithlibrary.org. And from art to chocolate, a reminder of the Eureka Springs Chocolate Tour and Chocolate Lovers Festival is also scheduled for February. This year it's February 12th. If you'd like your business included in the festival, you can contact the Eureka, Spring, the Eureka Springs Chamber of Commerce at eurekaspringschamber.com. The Walmart Amp and Rogers welcomes back the multi-platinum top 40 artists Fitz and the Tantrums, co-headlining their summer tour with the ever-evolving St. Paul and the Broken Bones on Thursday, June 23rd. Tickets go on sale this Friday, January 21st at 10 a.m. Amptickets.com or 443-5600 for tickets and more information. And before we end this Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large, a quick reminder that KUAF delivers more than just news every day. KUAF 2 is our 24-hour-a-day classical music station, and KUAF 3 presents jazz day and night. KUAF 3 also offers encore broadcasts of our locally produced music programs like the Generic Blues Show with Paul Kelso, the Pick and Post with Mike Shirky, the KUAF Vinyl Hour, and Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsburg every weekend. Both KUAF 2 and KUAF 3 are available for free on your HD radio, in your car or at home, and also available through the free KUAF app and by directing your browser to the free streams available at KUAF.com. And you can learn much more about all of our signals at KUAF.com. This is... 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Berryville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors this Wednesday included Dr. Karee Banton, Charlie Allison, and Jacqueline Froelich. Undiscipline is produced by Matthew Moore. Episode number one of season two available right now wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme is titled The First Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional information on today's show came from our friends in the news team at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. We'll have more news for you tomorrow morning at 5.30 and 7.30 with Daniel Carruth's newscast, Inside Morning Edition on KUAF, and more Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m., on KUAF and whenever you want with the Ozarks at Large podcast. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening. Please be well.